Jesus tells us that we can, we can take heart, we can be encouraged, we can have hope and peace because he has victory. He's the overcomer. Jesus leads us to root our hope and our peace in this fact that, that he's king, that he rules. At Christmas, we, we talk about, we sing about Jesus as the newborn king. What does that really mean? What are the implications of that? How does that become peace for us today? And, and church, we just need to be honest. I don't want to minimize any of the, the fear and frustration and trial that, that many are going through right now. And obviously that's varying degrees for many of us. But at the same time, the grand scheme of things, if, if we're just honest students of history or, or even of our current world situation, man, 99.9% .9 of the church throughout history around the world is going to look at us and say, oh, we could only have wished to have it that easy, to have it that good. We, we are a statistical anomaly in the existence of the church. It's a strange and rare thing to have the amount of comfort and freedom that we enjoy even now. How many of your friends have been killed for their faith? How many of your family members have, have, have lost everything, literally, because they've been discovered as Christians in Canada? Just this week, as, as one, one small example, uh, a Muslim group raided a, a small town and a, and a church in central Indonesia. Four Christians were killed. Three of them beheaded, or one beheaded, three of them with their throats cut. Six of the families gathered there, had their houses burned down, uh, and, and the 150 of those gathered were forced to, to flee their town, to run for their lives. Like, just think about that. Those things are happening every day to the Christians in the world around us. Imagine if that happened here. If, if four of us gathered here um, were martyred for their faith. If another six had their homes burned down, um, how many would be back here next Sunday? What does that look like? How do, you, how do you press on as a Christian under those kind of circumstances? That's hard, and, and that's happening around us. Um, and it's so important, church, that we, that we learn in this time to, to, to fix our eyes on Christ, what it means to to have that kind of focus, that kind of stability uh, in him. Um, a number of you have been canoeing with me down the North Saskatchewan River. It's a trip I love to do. Um, I've done it every year for the last, I think, 12 years, and I just want everyone to come with because it's awesome. Um, but the great thing about that trip is, is that I can take people on it who have never set foot in a canoe before. And, and they can jump in. And, and because the first day, uh, it's pretty chill. There, there's just a couple little riffles and it's, it's pretty relaxed. And you just get to feel the water moving under your boat and get comfortable. Um, later into day two, you start to get a couple of waves and it gets a little splashy and you get to kind of graduate up a little bit. And, and it's not till the end of day two and into day three that you start to hit some kind of class two, two plus rapids and, and things start to get serious. And, and at that point, you better be able to control your boat or, or you're in trouble. And, and most people have. They've, they've figured it out by then. Some don't. They get 
tossed around, they get spun around backwards, they end up upside down and, and swimming out. Um, but others do. They figure it out as it gradually gets bumpier, and by the time those big rapids come, they just kind of glide through with ease. And, and we just need to be honest, um, we're in the riffles right now. We're just beginning to feel the water move a little bit, maybe, under the boat uh, as we have a little bit of chaos added to our lives. Um, I don't know what's around the next bend or the bend after that. I don't know what lies ahead, but, but Jesus promised in this world you will have trouble. Maybe it's persecution. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's marriage trouble. Maybe it's the loss of a child or a job or a home. Um, some of you are right in the middle of that. For the rest of us, it, it's coming. It's coming. And it's so important we take this time now to figure out what does it mean to truly know that he is the overcomer, to take heart in that reality, to figure out how to keep our boat from capsizing in these little waves, because church, it's, it's not getting smaller from here on out. This morning, we're going to look at verse uh, 6 to 16 of Matthew chapter 1 and, and to see Jesus as the son of David, which is to say the promised king. Uh, he's the one who overcomes the world. That's why we can take heart, because he is king. We, we need this. We need to get this. So um, let me pray for us before we go any further. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we know this world is hard. We've seen it. We've seen it around us. We've seen it in our own lives. We have no uh, delusions that this is going to be a walk in the park, and, and we shouldn't. God, help us to set our eyes on you. Help us even this morning to grow in our understanding of what it means um, to be citizens of your kingdom, to rest firmly in the reality uh, of this king who has come and who is coming God, that our hearts might be stayed on him, that we would not be um, shaken and worried and certainly not capsized over the waves of this world, um, but that we would glide through um, with our eyes fixed on you, um, that you would be our hope and our foundation under our feet. So God, um, be at work through me as I speak. God, may my words be true to your word. Lord, if there's anything that I have prepared anything that comes out of my mouth that is not faithful to your word. God, I pray those words would just fall to the floor. They would not be heard. Um, but God, that in your grace and by your spirit, you would be at work um, through your word this morning, building us up, strengthening us, preparing us uh, for what lies ahead. God, that you might be glorified in your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me read... Uh, Matthew 6, or sorry, Matthew 1, verses 6 to 16 for us. And Jesus, the father of David the king, sorry, Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Okay, strange text. Not our normal Christmas text. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago, um, you know how this works. Um, this is a genealogy. It's laying out the, the line uh, of, of Jesus' heritage. And, and so Matthew starts his book um, introducing the Christmas story with this careful list of names, the names of the fathers. And it's significant. He's tracing down the family line, starting at Abraham and coming all the way down to Jesus. Um, pedigree, lineage was so important to the Jews. They, they kept careful records of their lineage for numerous reasons. Uh, for one, as they came into the land of Israel and settled there, the, the land was broken up according to the tribes of Israel. Um, the descendants of the 12 different sons uh, of Jacob, who was called Israel. And so where you lived mattered depending on your heritage. And, and where you could own land depended on who your father was. And, and so it mattered which tribe you belonged to. It also mattered for things like the priesthood. Um, the, the priests were those who could trace their line back to Levi. And, and the priests who served in the temple were those who could trace not back to just Levi, but under Levi, the sons of Aaron. Matthew's purpose in this genealogy, though, is the highest purpose of all. Um, he's telling us plainly what that purpose is. In verse 1, he says, This is the book of the genealogy of Christ, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those are the two high points. That's what he wants to hit. That's what he wants us to, to notice about this genealogy. He's introducing the Christmas story showing that, that Jesus is the physical descendant of Abraham and the physical descendant of David. And, and, and in that, he's the grand fulfillment of the promises that were made to these two men. And so as we saw uh, two weeks ago through Abraham, God had promised to bless the whole world, that, that this Savior, this rescuer who would come uh, would be hope for even the most hopeless. And today we're going to look back at what it means that this Jesus would be the son of David, the king to end all kings. And so first we need to, we need to get Matthew's point nice and clear, um, and, and that is the proof of the king. This is just hard, evidential proof that Jesus is the son of David. That's what he's laying out, the proof of the king. It's undeniable. Saul was the first king of Israel, if you know your biblical history, but, but Saul was never God's man. He was not from the tribe of Judah, from whom God said the king of Israel would come. Uh, and uh, God soon removed Saul and put David in his place. David was God's man. Under David, uh, Israel finally established themselves in the land of Israel and pushed the other nations out. They, they conquered the city of Jerusalem where David would put his throne. And, and under David, there was peace and prosperity like Israel had never known. Um, it, David reigned over Israel for 40 years, and it's often called the golden age of Israel. And, and so 
We follow the line down from David. Um, David's son was Solomon. Solomon picked up where David left off. He was a good king. Um, He increased the borders of Israel all the more. Um, Israel just grew in wealth and prosperity. Um, They built the temple to the Lord under Solomon. But of course, you know, Solomon uh, had many foreign wives, and those wives drew his heart away after other gods. And in the end, Solomon was not faithful to the Lord, um, and he established numerous um, pagan idols and places of worship across Israel. And so after Solomon, um, the kingdom split into two. And the the northern half is called Israel, just to make sure that we stay confused as we read. And uh, and, and that's led by evil kings and and no descendants of David rule in Israel. Um, The the northern kingdom of Israel just spirals down into wickedness. Um, The southern kingdom, the bottom half, um, is where Jerusalem was. And it was primarily the tribe of Judah. uh, And so it gets the name Judah. And the kingdom of Judah um, was ruled by uh, the kings in the line of David. And and that's the line that Matthew is following here as he's walking through. These are the kings uh, of that um, southern kingdom of Israel. And from Rehoboam, Solomon's son in verse 7, down to Josiah in verse 10, um, there's basically an even split of flip-flopping um, good kings to bad kings. And there'd be a couple of good kings and then a couple of bad kings. And, uh, and yet, it seems as though the, the evil kings just brought in an onslaught of, of idolatry and immorality. And the good kings were just barely able to hold it back. They never abolished the idols in Israel. They never came back as far as to, to worship the Lord properly. And, and so they just kind of served to slow the descent into evil. And these good kings holding back, um, Josiah is the last of the good kings, but by the time he came along, just to give you an idea of what the the nation of Judah looked like, how bad it had gotten, um, you'll remember they were cleaning out the junk in a storage room in the temple. That's how bad it was. The temple wasn't even being used. They're just cleaning out a back room, and they find the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy, And, and Josiah says, well... Let's read that. That's interesting. And they read through it, and he's convicted, and and he brings about this great revival. Uh, And it says, for the first time since the time of the judges, so since before King Saul, the nation celebrated the Passover. Like, what? I thought the Passover was like central to, to what it meant to be a Jew. It was. And they hadn't done it for hundreds of years. They didn't even know it existed. They lost it. And so he pulls out this, this book of the law, and there's this great revival, and yet it's so short-lived. Um, Josiah's sons don't follow in his footsteps. Um, Jeconiah uh, was the last king of the nation of Judah before the Lord would finally send in Babylon uh, as his rod of discipline and, and, and to rule over Judah and sent the vast majority of the people there off in exile. They just scattered them out across the, um, the, the territory of Babylon. Jeconiah himself was so wicked um, that, that God said to Jeconiah through the prophet Jeremiah uh, 2230 that no descendant of Jeconiah would ever reign on the throne of David. And, and so you go, well, it's a little problematic that he's here then isn't it? Uh, How does Jeconiah make this list? Well, 
The line of David continues down through the next 70 years of exile and then another 500 years after that until uh, verse 16. And, And look how carefully this is worded. And you see just God's sovereign plan working its way out so so intentionally worded, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So is Jesus a descendant of Jeconiah? Well, is he the son of Joseph? Legally, yes. Yes, Joseph was the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus. The legal right of the kingship is handed down from father to son throughout the generations, and and. And legally, Jesus is of that line. And and yet, did a descendant of Jeconiah take the throne of David? No, not exactly. Not exactly. Now, just a point of curiosity, the book of Luke also gives us a genealogy, Luke chapter 3. But those names are different coming down from David. It's not through Solomon, it's through Nathan, another one of his sons. And, And Mary isn't mentioned specifically there, but... But I think, I think that genealogy is the genealogy of Mary. Um, so it's Jesus' mother's side. And so legally, he's the son of David of the line of kings uh, through Joseph. And by blood, he's the son of David through Mary by another line. And, and so this is just the proof of it, this undeniable lineage from David down to Jesus. And, and by the way, those records now are completely lost. There, there is no way to trace your lineage back um, to, to those lines anymore. It's impossible. So Jesus is the last one who has made any, any um, real credible claim to the throne of David. There's, there's no way to do that anymore. But what does that mean? What does it matter that Jesus is the son of David? How does this How does this steady our boat in troubled waters? Well, we need to move from seeing the proof of the king to understanding what it means. We need to see the promise of the king. Every good Jew is reading this, and they know exactly the argument that Matthew is making. They know exactly what he's pointing to, um, that Jesus is the son of David. Uh, It's the promise of the king. David uh, himself um, became, in in many ways, a a type or a foreshadowing of what the Messiah would be, the promised rescuer. He was God's chosen man. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the ruler over God's people who brought peace and and prosperity and victory over for Israel. And, And so... Many of the Psalms, as you read them, they're, they're autobiographical about David. He's telling about his own life and he's, they're his prayers and his worship. They're also at the same time prophetic about what the Messiah would be. So never, never read the Psalms without that in the back of your mind. But the explicit promise to David shows up in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David had just brought the Ark of the Covenant back into uh, Jerusalem. There was this great celebration and joy. There was peace in the land. Um, David decided, finally, now's the time. I'm going to build a temple for the Lord. I'm going to build a house for God, replacing the, the portable tabernacle that Moses had built. Did David surprise? The Lord says, no, you won't. No, you won't. You're not going to build me a house. And then God turns the tables on him and metaphorically says, no, I will build you a house. And and by that, he means a a lineage, a legacy, a family line. So 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, the Lord says this to David. When your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your father. So David, when you're dead, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, as God often, often does, that, that promise is partially fulfilled uh, in Solomon. Solomon literally built a house for the Lord. Solomon reigned on his, his throne. But, but there's so much in there that just obviously goes beyond Solomon. Solomon falls short of completely fulfilling that. God is pointing forward to a far greater king, a greater house, a greater kingdom, a kingdom that will last forever. God continues to build on that promise through the years, through the prophets, um, one precious promise after another. And, and one of the ones that we often look to this time of year um, that, is, that is so rich is Isaiah 6, or sorry, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and verse 7. Isaiah um, says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a, what a phenomenal promise. That's who this king is going to be when he comes. Think about this. What would it be to, to live in a nation, a world under that king? A king with, with unchallenged authority who's called the Wonderful Counselor. Imagine a king over us who always does what is perfectly right, who is so wise, his wisdom is without defect. He always does what is good and true and right. He'll be called Mighty God. He is absolutely powerful. He is able to bring about his will completely. There's no challenging this king. There's no rising up against him. And he's the everlasting father. So he will reign forever. Um, it's, it's not a matter of, oh, this is going to be a good four years, but what's going to happen at the next election? No, there is no more next election. He's everlasting on this throne. And he's a father. A king who cares for his people, who knows them by name, who, who provides for them every good thing that they need. Just picture that. That's phenomenal. A king who is this everlasting father who provides every good thing for his, his people under his reign. And then finally, the prince of peace. And that word there is shalom, um, this Hebrew concept of peace that's so bigger, so much bigger than what we think of today. This is not just a lack of war. Um, this, this speaks of inner peace, of wholeness, of completeness, of, of, of joy and rest. This is perfect life and life abundant. That's what it's talking about, the prince of peace. That's a king I want to be under. That's a government I'm excited to have. And that's what this king would bring. And he would rule in justice and righteousness. This is the end and the undoing of, of every evil of every pain and suffering caused by sin in this world, this is, this is a, a new reality altogether. A world that, that will fulfill every good and right longing of the human heart forever. Unending, uninterrupted peace. 
That's the promise of this king. That's what Matthew is tapping into here as he's laying out this lineage. He's saying Jesus is that son of David. This is the proof of the king and then the promise of the king. And now in this passage, um, Matthew's introducing the Christmas story. He's saying the king has come. The king has come. This is it. He's here. Israel has waited eagerly, longing for that day, looking forward to these promises, saying, when, Lord? And Matthew's saying, now, he's come. This is it. This is the son of David. Imagine poor Israel. Surely after David died and Solomon took the throne, they thought, this is it. Here's the son of David. This is going to be great. And then... Solomon went off the rails and they're left wondering, hopeless. And for the next 388 years from from Solomon down to the exile, um, they bounced between good kings and bad kings. And every time I'm sure thinking, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is it. He's the one that'll bring it back. He's the one that's going to restore Israel and and, and bring this peace and this joy. and, And every time they're disappointed. Finally, the wickedness has spiraled down where the Lord finally used Babylon to remove them and and they've been taken out of the land of Israel altogether. The throne of David is, is no throne at all. There's no king. There's not even a kingdom. What a dark time that would have been. 70 years until the Persians took over the Babylonians and they sent a bunch of the, uh, of the Israelites back to the land as kind of ragtag group return and they begin to resettle and, and rebuild, certainly hope of maybe, maybe this is the beginning of something new uh, and yet that happens under the rule of the Persians and then under the Greeks and then under the Romans. 517 years from the, the exile down They don't have their own kingdom. So you can see this longing, this waiting through the book of Matthew. People are watching and and, and waiting for this promise. When's it going to come? And Jesus is called the son of David six more times through the book of Matthew. Um, Matthew 9, these two blind men cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, son of David. Jesus asked, do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I can heal your blindness? And they say, yes, absolutely. They expected the son of David to be the end of their blindness. Matthew 12, um, Jesus was doing miracles and healings. And it says the crowd was amazed and they began to say to one another, could this be the son of David? You can just imagine this bustling crowd going, this could be it. This could finally be him. Matthew 15, even a Canaanite woman with a a demon-possessed daughter, cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Think about that. Even the Canaanites have heard rumors of this promise. And they're thinking, this is good. This could be good for us. We want this king too. Maybe this king can save my daughter from being possessed by his demon. Matthew 20. In Jericho, again, two blind men calling out to Jesus as he passed by, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The poor, the blind, the outsiders, the demon-possessed, they're eagerly, 
desperately waiting. Our lives are a mess. We need hope. We need something. Where's the son of David? And and they expect this could be it. This could be the end. And, And they believe that his coming would be the end of all of their suffering. The son of David would fix all of this. He would be the the wonderful counselor, the the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When they saw Jesus, they, they, they said, could this be him? At long last, could this be the one, the one who would bring an end to all of our poverty, our, our oppression, our suffering, the one who would be the light shining into the darkness? Could this be it? And the overarching answer of the book of Matthew, the, the purpose of the writing of this gospel is to say, yes, yes, this baby born in Bethlehem, he is the son of David. He is the coming king, the son of David, the one who's come to rescue us out of the brokenness of this world. And that's why that fateful night, the, the angels declare glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Matthew 4, 17, uh, Jesus came out of his temptation in the wilderness and, and began officially his three years of, of ministry. And Matthew summarizes Jesus' core message this way. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's about the kingdom. It's about the fact that he is the king who has come. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the the arrival of this king. And and so we we sing and we hang lights on our houses and we have feasts and we throw parties and we we give gifts because the king has come. It's Jesus. And yet, anyone else feel the disparity here? He's come. He has. So this is it then? This is peace on earth? This is what that goodwill toward men looks like. I'm not feeling it. I'm just not impressed. Well, guess what? We're not the first ones to feel that way. Um, If you were keeping score, um, there are two more places where Jesus is called the son of David in the book of Matthew, and and they come together. After all of the healings and miracles and all of the teaching and proclaiming about the kingdom, Matthew 21, Jesus was making his way into Jerusalem. Again, fulfilling promises made from many years past as he rode in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And the people gathered around in exuberant joy, waving palm branches and laying their cloaks down on the ground for his donkey to walk over, shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna literally means save us, but kind of culturally it had become to be, to be used as basically saying we're saved. This is it. Hosanna, we're, we're saved. The son of David is here and, and he's riding into the royal city, into Jerusalem. Surely now he's going to take his throne. Less than a week later, they would look on as that same king, the son of David, is hung on a criminal's cross and died. How crushing. The son of David killed by the servants of Caesar. Even the disciples who had been with Jesus over the last three years scattered and fled and hid in fear. No doubt they spent that night crying out to God, praying the same prayers that that you and I pray today. God, where are you? 
God, why does this still hurt? God, why does it seem like sin and wickedness continue to run rampant? Why do we still have evil rulers and, and, and they do evil things? Why is justice and righteousness absent in our world? Why do we still have pain and disease and suffering and brokenness and loneliness? If the king has come, what's going on here? Long intro to point four, but here it is. The king is coming. Yes, the king has come, and yet the king is still coming. What does that mean? Well, when God revealed to the Old Testament prophets about the coming Messiah, the Savior, he didn't tell them all the details. He gave them a lot, and what he gave them was true. He didn't mislead them. He just didn't give them every detail. And, and as we look, um, many of these Old Testament prophecies, as, as they were kind of looking down the corridor of history, um, they saw it as one climactic event, the day of the Lord. God had revealed to them these things, but, but from their perspective, they, they didn't have any depth perception on it. And so like when you look out at the night sky, and, and you see the stars in the sky, and maybe a satellite going by, and, and from our perspective, they kind of look like they're all on the same level or at least close. But if you were to head up into that sky, um, closest satellite is going to hit you at about 150 kilometers out. So, you know, an hour and a half if we're taking my minivan. It's not that far away. The closest star, on the other hand, is 40 trillion kilometers out. And the furthest star that's visible by the naked eye is 5 billion light years away. I did the math. I wanted to put it in kilometers. All I got was another math equation. Um, I didn't understand. It's too big. It's too big. It's so far out. So the same way the prophets are looking out at, at the promises of the Messiah and, and, and they don't see that they're not overlapping. They don't have depth perception on it. Isaiah 9 is a great example. It's, it's one seamless passage, right? Verse 6. A child is born, a son is given, it's, it's Christmas, the king has come. And then verse 7, how his kingdom will have no end and he's going to rule and he's going to bring righteousness and justice and peace forever. They, they look like they're side by side, but as you, as you get closer, as God began to work his plan out through history, um, we get a different perspective. And we see that though he has come once to initiate that kingdom, he's still coming again. It's not over yet. He's going to come and complete it. Verse 6 and verse 7 are at least 2,020 years apart, and I hope not much more than that. But why did God do that? Why not just come once and get it over with? Well, the reason he didn't do that is really good news for us. If Christ had come once to complete his mission, if he had come to establish his kingdom in full, what would that mean for you and me? If he came to obliterate his enemies and to wipe this world free from sin and its corruption, it would be the end of the human race. We are sinners, rebels against God deserving of his rightful wrath, as, as Mike LaRusso so delicately put it a few weeks ago when he was here, you're the problem. You are what's wrong with this world. It's us. 
And so Jesus came first not to destroy his enemies. Praise the Lord for that. Rather, he came back to rescue. To die as a sacrifice in our place. That we might be brought out of that kingdom of darkness. Have our debt of of sin paid for, wiped out. Before he returns again to destroy this evil kingdom once and for all. And so we're currently in this in-between time. The patience and mercy of God working its way out. The king has come and he has come to rescue out from that kingdom of darkness. All those who will call on him be rescued out. By his death he purchased our freedom. But the day is coming. When that time of patience, that time of calling and and welcoming in will come to an end. And that's where our hope lies. That's where fulfillment is. Christmas is not the end, it's just the beginning. Our hope is that Jesus has overcome this world and, and that hope still lies ahead in its fullness. We saw glimpses of it when he was here, right? He healed the blind and the lame and he cast out demons and he he calmed the storm and he raised the dead and he spoke about justice and peace for all. He was just giving these sneak peeks. He's just kind of pulling back the curtain ever so slightly saying, that's what it'll be when it comes. This is what my kingdom will be like. That's our hope, church. And we have confidence because the king has come. Because All of the prophecies that he fulfilled and all of the miracles that he performed and and most significantly his rising again from the dead, we have proof that this is it. He's the king that came, the son of David. He's the fulfillment of that. His kingdom has begun in one sense here and now. But we have hope. We, We can take heart because that kingdom will be completed. Those promises will come to complete fulfillment. The book of Revelation tells about what that return will look like. And though people seem today to be trembling and scared, oh no, maybe this is the end times, this could be it. Guys, that's good news for us. Jesus wins in the end. Read Revelation again. Revelation 5.5, and one of the elders said to me, this is John telling about his vision of the future, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. He's he's talking about the judgment of God on this world of darkness that he's going to unleash at his second coming. And this king, the son of David, when he comes again, he will come not as a humble sacrifice. He will come in mighty power and with a word. Not even lifting a finger, but with a word, he will destroy Satan and sin and death and hell and and every corrupt ruler and every unjust authority and every wickedness of this world is, is brought to an end. All suffering and fear and pain and loneliness are no more. People often think about heaven as this kind of soft and fluffy ethereal terms we're kind of floating out above the clouds that's not the biblical picture of heaven the biblical picture of heaven is this world recreated made new 
with all the damage and decay of sin undone. It's, it's these bodies brought back out from the grave and reconstituted in what was once mortal, now clothed in immortality. And, and we're made new. And Jesus, the son of David, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, ruling on his throne in justice and righteousness. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. From this time forth and forevermore, that's our hope. Church, in this world, you will have trouble. But Christ has overcome this world. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Christ. This is not our home. We don't belong here. If this country falls apart around us, as I was told this week, it's about to, and and maybe they're right. But this isn't our home. If, if every conspiracy theory proves true and worse, we have citizenship in another country, a country of our own ruled by Christ that is being kept for us, that's untouched by the chaos and the havoc here. Hebrews 11 talks about uh, the great heroes of the faith from Abel and Enoch and Noah down through Joseph and Moses and Rahab and and Gideon and Samuel and the prophets. And And it speaks of their great victories of faith and it also speaks of great suffering in their faith. Some were tortured, refusing, listen to that, refusing to accept release that they might rise again to a better life. No, no, I'm good. You keep me in jail. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even the chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted and mistreated, living in dens and caves among the mountains and the deserts. Wow. Sawn in two? Who does that? Stoned? Beaten? Living in caves? By faith, they persevered because they trusted that there was a great kingdom to come. Listen to Hebrews 11, uh, 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, what was the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that, they're not, that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is their desires for a better country, that is, a heavenly one, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's us, church. We're exiles. We're strangers here. This is a short-term mission trip, and we're gone. We have our own country, our own home. We don't belong here. Hold your worldly possessions lightly. Don't let your comfort and your peace be be wrapped up in in the things of this world, in your freedom here, in your status here. Don't let these things captivate your thoughts. Don't let them be the things that define you. Set your heart on that kingdom to come. Focus on what is ahead. And learn now, through these little splashing waves, to steady our boat, 
with the truth that the, that the kingdom is coming. And though the waves may grow fierce in this world, for those whose hope is rooted in the king, the son of David, that boat of their faith will not be overturned. We ought to glide gracefully through these trials in this world um, with our eyes fixed on him, our hope set on our eternal home. I invite the worship team to come back up. I want to close this morning singing a Christmas song that I've long said is not actually a Christmas song. They've duped us. It's not about the first coming. It's about the second coming. And so appropriate, though, I think, as we celebrate the first coming of the son of David, that we eagerly, hopefully anticipate the second coming. Listen to the words of this song. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That's our future hope, church.